Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with a three-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ, and Red Sox Hall of Famer, Kevin Euclid. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ, and a Red Sox Hall of Famer. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Euclid. You, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I got a question from you. What would your What would Kevin Euclid's scouting report be on Kevin Euclid as a college Ooh. player? Oh, as a college player. Wow. Yeah. You're, si- you're uh, sitting up there making the decisions. What's your what, what report you're turning in? Uh, I'm turning in a pretty good report, honestly, because, you know, I, I looked at it as, uh, you know, I think the scout reports are always funny, too. I, I had a lot of scouts that looked at me and said, eh, this guy can't do this. He can't do that. But the good scouts, what you do is you see all the things that really, truly matter in the development process. And that's can a guy square up the baseball? Can a guy play with heart? Does he love the game? And I think those things that checked out the boxes more than anything. Uh, and I think that's where as a scout, I think, and sometimes now we're missing that a lot too, is, you know, analytics are great and they give you a lot of information. But the problem is, is that thing you can't measure is the ability for somebody to love the game, have the heart, the ability to learn and to grow. Uh, so for me out of college, I had some crazy stats too. Uh, it's like a four ninety nine. Uh, on base percentage and all that. So, um, yeah, I'm giving myself a pretty high grade. You know, I, I understand that. And it's funny, like people joked around saying you'd be a first rounder in today's game. I was like, yeah, that's not really a good thing when you get $12,000 out of your college senior year um, to reflect back on. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the grades are just different, right? So it's like the speed's not there. Uh, had a little bit of power, but for me, bad to ball skills. If you could square up baseballs, those are the guys you want to draft. I agree with you. And and I think the intangibles are so big, you know, from my perspective and, and you played longer than me into the, you know, into the beginning of this, this current age of, of analytics and, and everything's in, there's so much data in one way I've, I'm a little bit envious because I was a data guy. I was an Intel guy. I mean, give me every piece of information about my opponent and I'll decide what I'm going to use for tomorrow's series. You know, as an example, um, you know, my, my last years were in the early 2000s. So we were kind of VCR going to, going to DVD. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember, uh, our video guy, Carl, I'd be screaming at him, Carl, give me some video. I need some video on so-and-so and so-and-so. We got this series and I didn't do very well last time. And, uh, but yeah, I was, a, I was, a a nerd for having as much Intel. Now I think the most interesting, uh, one of the more interesting podcasts I did was with Trevor Bauer, who, you know, is a data freak and he's got everything, but he made some real smart points. And he said, Booney, uh, too much data in the wrong hands is dangerous. And, and I agree with that. I see the young kids today. I see the, you know, I see them training in cages and, and it's that head on a swivel. Oh, what was my exit velo? And I said, don't worry about it. I said, you know, when something's good, as you said, bat to ball, uh, having good ABs will keep you in a lineup. 
Um, but that X of, oh, it was only 96. Who cares what it is? And then the funny thing is, uh, someone will hit one in the seats. Was that good? What's my exit philosophy? Who really cares what you're, you know, when, you know, when you smoke a ball, it's a feeling we have. It's a whack. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's going, that's going somewhere. You know, sometimes we're not always, we're not always uh, hitting in the seat. Sometimes we're out, but we know what a good swing yeah. is and we know what a good approach is. And I try to keep that pretty state. Hey, I don't think it's ever going to go away. You as far as, as far as this data, I think it's here to stay. I think it can be tempered and used a little more efficiently. Um, but you're never going to replace getting into the box, getting a good pitch to hit, knocking the shit out of it. Yeah. Well, and the data, and a lot of the thing is, is the eye test, right? So there's, there's some people that have great eyes for the game. And I think that's one of the things that you know, what were scouts of old and why they were very successful was the eye test. And now the data allows you to make sure that your eye test is accurate. Sometimes, you know, you don't see things accurately. And that's where the analytics come in to really do a good job of making sure that if you're not seeing something, oh, well, there it is. Okay. And, th- and that's where I, you know, when guys are very anti analytics, I, I disagree with them completely because it, analytics is so broad, it's a huge bubble. And then you can break it down. I think it's kind of ironic that Trevor Bauer said that stuff too on your podcast because, you know, him and Driveline have taken it all to the next level of, and sometimes insulting. Uh, Kyle Bodie has been insulting online. I got off Twitter a long time ago because I was like, I'm not even trying to keep up with these people because it's like a cult. Um, and they didn't want to listen. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, and, I, and I finally just said, you know what? This is the definition of insanity, throwing stuff out there um, because there's something you can't explain. Right. And, and the one thing that you try to explain to hitters is if I'm your hitting coach, I'm your assistant hitting coach. OK, you need to be your best hitting coach. You need to understand your feels when you're out in front, when you're behind, when your bat's lagging, when you're getting too muscular. Those are things that I can't I can look in the data and do. But you have to adjust pitch to pitch when you get laid on a swing and you foul it to the opposite field over the dugout. You're like, man, I was, I was, I late there. Was it, you know, was it my timing? Did I drop my hands? All those little things in real time have to be the adjustment of the hitter, which makes you your hitting coach. And that's one thing that I always prided myself on was knowing my swing, knowing my mechanics when I was out in front. And there were times I didn't know. And so that's where the hitting coach comes in and goes, Hey, look, you're, you're, you're just not getting back. You're going back too fast and you're going back to, and you're, and you're getting too quick. And there's little things like that, that that's where the good hitting coaches and the analytics and a lot of this new technology that I love, the biomechanics that shows. But like you said, if you get too inundated into the into the information and you keep trying to process this day in and day out, what you're trying to do is you're processing perfection. And we all know in baseball, we're all trying to get a hit every single bat. We want it. And you have to have the mindset to go up that, hey, I can get a hit every time. But, the you know... <laughs> It's never going to happen. I mean, there's some days you have that, right? You have the four for four days, the five for five days, and those are anomalies. But uh, for me, I agree. The information is not going away, but you also have to have good hitting coaches that know I can give this player this much information while this player, I cannot, I have to keep it very simplistic. I cannot, or he will just literally get in his own head at bat to at bat. No, I think you're right. And, and, you know, we've both had a lot of experience with a lot, probably, I don't know about you, but I, ha- I had a uh, quite a few 
hitting coaches in my career. I, by the way, I think it's probably the toughest job in, in sports uh, with with the outside world and, and fans. And like you mentioned, Twitter, if your team doesn't hit, you stink. You need to go. I, that's the funniest thing I hear from fans is, well, that hitting coach has got to go. I said, do you realize that once you get to the big leagues, pretty much you're expected to be a polished professional and hitting coaches are there as a guide you know and i often think about if i were a hitting coach because i don't think mechanically i'm i'm great at at you know for instance if kevin euclid is my hitter brett boone is a hitting coach i don't know if necessarily i could say i know how to hit and i know what you need to do to be successful but getting it from my head my thoughts into your head i don't think i'm necessarily good at it i don't think many people are what i like to talk about is the is the mental side of hitting the approach how we approach 162 games as consistent as we can be to come out with the best result we can for an individual the best hitting coaches i ever had kevin were not the guys that were oh get your elbow here and uh, here's your stride no it was lee Ilya is a great example I don't know if you remember Lee, but he was a part-time guy with uh, with me in Seattle. And and he'd walk by me and I, he, he'd he see I was in deep thought. You know, I stink. I'm, I'm over my last seven. And he'd look at me and go, hey, Booney, what's going on? And I'd say, Lee, what do you what do you think's going on? You've you've been watching me up there. I'm horrible. <laughs> and he would look at me and he'd go, well, you know, and, and I've shared this before on the show. I said, he said, uh, well, remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in Texas and you did that thing with your top hand? And I look at him. And I, yeah, I do. He goes, why don't you try that? And he'd walk away. And all of a sudden, I've got hope for my next at bat. Like, yeah, Lee was there when we did that. What am I doing? I forgot about that. Those were the subtle real things at the highest level. Now there's, it's different if you're an instructional ball or low a ball and you're working on your craft, you're a young player. Right. Uh, you, you haven't, you haven't become a big leaguer yet. Yeah. Okay. Now there's mechanical things we all have to do. We can all, we all start in different ways. I was crazy about my hand position that put my lower body in position. I have a son playing minor league baseball right now. He, all he thinks about is his lower half. Well, that's tough for me to, conceptualized because I never thought like that, but I also realized that we're all different. You know, you had the thing that you did at the top. I don't know what that was. You, <laughs> but whatever it was, it doesn't matter. It got you in the frame of mind that when that ball's in the zone, I get to where I need to be. And this is where I've got to start. And, and uh, you know, I'd look at other players. I'd look at other great hitters. I'd, I'd follow Edgar around and I'm like, Oh, I was envious that he had so little movement. Uh, from the time he got in his stance to when he had that separation where I dropped my hand so far, but I couldn't be him. The bottom right. line is we were, when we were both on time, we were both in the exact position when that ball was in that area. And, and I think it's fascinating, but once again, I think it's really tough to be a great hitting instructor. It is. It's, it's the hardest thing now because the, the problem is, is the the new the, the younger generation of ball players are fascinated with marketing gurus. They are fascinated with people that are going to tell. Like the, we used to have tough love, you know. Tough love is is gone out the window, and, and and I think it's a good thing too in a lot of ways. I think there's there's something to be said about how you have to adapt and change over time um, and evolve. And I think there was a lot of. I remember in college. I mean, I got yelled at at practice all the time, and I I still love my college coach, but. 
it was just hard love, hard love all the time, you know, you know, and, and getting on you and getting at you. And that's just not the case anymore. But the hard part is now is, you know, these guys are chasing guys that think that they are the reason they're good. And I tell guys this, you are the reason you are good and stop buying into that. You need your own personal hitting coach. These guys are at the major league level for a reason. They are very good at what they do. You got to trust in them. And yeah, if you want to have somebody that, you know, you want to bounce ideas around, but it's, it becomes a bad, in my opinion, I think it, it, it's really hard. And uh, I, I actually, Terry Francona asked me uh, to apply for the hitting coach job last season. So, you know, I, I went through the interview process, didn't get the job. Chris Valeka got it and we worked together with the Cubs and he's awesome. So I was like, well, if somebody's going to beat me out for the job, I, I want it to be a friend. And, uh, he got the job and I was very thankful. I didn't get the job because afterwards I was like, you know what? That is, it's just, it's such a grind and you're dealing with so many personalities and it's not even just the personalities or the hitting philosophies. That's easy. You know, you, you work with people and I think you said it the best with the communication, everything with hitting starts with communication and verbiage. The problem is, is too many people want to express their verbiage versus learning the hitters verbiage. So if, if my, if my first point, like you said, if, if, if it's, I want to get my toe up or I want to lift, you know, I, I want to use my front knee to go back or I want to go with, you know, my hands first. Well, how you say it is very important in how you develop that relationship. And I think that's the hard part right now for hitting coaches is there's not a lot of trust from a lot of hitters because they have their own hitting guys. So when you when you have a 13 guys on a team, you hope that you can have at least half that buy into you and not everyone has their own personal hitting coach. And that's one thing that people don't know in the outside world right now is it's so hard because you're not just appeasing the player and trying to connect with that player. You're sometimes also having to talk to their hitting guy. And I think that is just, I mean, when you have so many people in the ear of a hitter, it can get really, it, it can get really tough. It, I agree with you. You know, I had a, when I went through my career, yeah, I had some guys that, that uh, I related with could help me to a certain degree as we get older too, as players and, and get a little more experience under our belt. We know what to take a little bit here, a little bit there, and we can decipher being a young player. You just want to prove to everybody that you belong here and you're a big leaguer. So you'll, you know, it, young player on a big league team, you're going to listen to your hitting coach because it's like, I got to listen to him because he's going to talk to the skipper and he's going to, you know, after a while and you get established in the game, you know what to do. I mean, I had right. hitting coaches that were one of my favorite men in the game. One of my favorite guys I've ever been around. Uh, and a guy, when I was young, I was coming into the game, I would go out early and there was very few guys I did. I'd go out early to watch him hit was Paul Molitor. And Paulie was my hit. My Paulie, Paulie was my hitting coach in uh, <laughs> Seattle in 2004. And once again, let me preface it with: this is not only one of the great hitters of of my early generation, but just what a what a great dude and a Hall of Famer, just class and doesn't have that Hall of Fame. Just whatever, he's Paulie. So I respect him a lot as a man as well. And uh, uh, my 2004, I, I, I had a decent season. It was okay. You know, I was coming off a really good season in 03. And it was so, if you want to talk about it, it was considered a down season for me. And I remember sitting with Polly, and he's flipping me, God bless him, at the end of the season. And I, I'm kind of looking at him. We're both kind of smirking. And he goes, Booney, he goes, I'll tell you one thing. 
He said, I could get a freaking hit. I said, Paulie, I watched. I know you could get a hit. And he goes, I just can't help you get a hit. (laughs) 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 And it's just the way it is. Like you said, some people, why does Lee Ilya, a guy that's been in the game a hundred years, he he was a coach on my dad's staff in Philly in the seventies, you know, so he knew me as a five-year-old. Why did I have a rapport with him? There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just I did. He said things that clicked with me. My dad, who was, you know, known as a defensive catcher, you know, one one in a bunch of gold gloves. He wasn't known for his offense, but somehow I related with my father. I mean, I've had times where I, I flew him in and we'd get to the yard at 12 o'clock. So nobody knew. So keep the politics out of it, you know, with the hitting coach. And I don't want to hurt his feelings that my dad's coming in, but it's my dad, man. And, yeah. and he can help me. And right now. You get to a point as a veteran player where I don't really care the politics of the game. I just know this. I'm killing us right now because I'm one for my last 15. And exactly. desperate measures mean send dad a ticket <laughs> and and work out under the under the bleachers when no one's around if that's what it takes. Yeah, it's a, it's a little easier when your dad has a track, you know, a resume behind him and, you know, a hitting coach. And, and that's also the ego thing, right? So as a hitting guy, you also have to let your ego go at times, right? You can't. You can't get so demonstrative of like, I'm the hitting coach. I'm the hitting coach. It's like, listen, who cares if, 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 if it's the father coming, working with them and we all work together and I just sit there and listen because now as a hitting coach, I can go, okay, what is his dad? What is he saying to his son? What is he seeing? So now I understand the verbiage that his dad is giving him and their connection over the years and how they explain hitting. And now that's my job now as a hitting guy to go, okay, I, but the other way would be, oh, that's it. I'm not even going to pay attention to this. Just sit there and just be, you know, a fly on the wall and listen because you're going to gain so much as a hitting guy. But it is true though about hitting coaches. Sometimes you connect well with other, you know, with some hitting coaches. Sometimes you don't connect, you know. But the worst thing for any young hitter, I always say, is this: never blame your hitting coach because, or I should say, sorry, I should preface that differently. Always blame your hitting coach. Your hitting coach. It, is yourself. Never blame the assistants. When you start blaming the assistants, you're not being accountable for your own self. You're the one that gets in the box. You're the one that does it, right? And so I, I was a big believer in that. Stop blaming hitting you know, your, your assistant hitting coaches, which is your hitting coaches, but the biggest hitting coach is yourself. You got to be accountable for how you go about it, what you're doing, because at the end of the day, when you start pushing that, you know, pushing that onto somebody else, you know, you're losing all accountability and that's just not a good look at, you know, when it comes to the baseball. I think you make a great point and it's not made enough when you say instead of, and I don't want to necessarily say every, every hitting coach that I encountered uh, that had a problem with outside hitting coaches were insecure, but the politics of it says, Hey, wait a minute, I'm the hitting coach. Well, whatever you're doing with your, with your guy isn't really working. So I think that's a great, point when you say you know instead of having that instead of uh disliking what's going on resenting another guy coming in do the contrary listen to what this guy obviously this guy this hitting this hitter trust this man when they get together it works so as a hitting coach that's with him every day maybe i can find out what works? Okay. And now I can put that in my brain and go next time. Now, maybe I can become a hitting coach for that individual. I think it's a great point. That's not talked about enough. Yeah, it is. It is hard though. You know, I think one of the hard things too is, but it also, if, if you don't 
you know, you have to be around and you have to want to listen to, because that's also the information that you're feeding the front office, right? Like when they're like, Hey, why is this guy not hitting? It's like, listen, you know, we brought in this hitting guy. We've talked, we've discussed this, this, and this, this is what he's explained to me. This is how it works. This is what is supposed to get him going. We've gone down this road and they're like, well, that's not working. Well, then you have to go, okay. All right. So, but I have to be very careful that I can't just start going, Hey, you're hitting guy stinks because now I lose trust in that player. Right. So you got to find an avenue and you got to go down and you've got to figure out like, and that's the hard part of a hitting coach is sometimes you have to just figure out a road that's way off path that you're, you're not even used to. And you just you got to be, you got to be, you got to adapt just like you, just like hitters in the box that have to adapt day in and day out, you know, hitting coaches have to adapt too. And sometimes you know, I remember Chili Davis said to me one time, he was in the, he was in AAA and I was rehabbing and I just didn't feel right. And he's, he told me years after the fact, he goes, I just told you to think about your belly button or something. And I didn't even believe what I was saying. I just said something just to say it and see if it would give you any confidence. And it did, I guess. And it worked, yeah. but it was just outlandish. And it, and, it, and also that point by Chili was more like, I'm getting your mind off something else that you're grinding. Because as hitters, we grind to try to chase that perfection of feel. And sometimes we need a different thought process that gets us totally off that train of thought and gets us into a more of a positive aspect. And who knows? I mean, you can say belly button. You can say, you know, quad, hamstring. Because now the hitter's like, okay, I've stopped focusing on my hands. And now I'm focusing on something else. And just that little bit of focus takes you away from something that has made you absolutely insane because you're trying to figure out and it just is not coming to you. Yeah. It's man. I used to, I, 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 my, my last resort uh, during my career when I would scuffle was I, I'd go down in the cage for like 10 minutes and hit left-handed. And by the way, it's, yeah. it's ugly. Uh, I'm, <laughs> it's I'm, so fun, yeah. I mean, I'm a bad left-handed, you know, some, <laughs> some guys, you know, some teammates you play with, they do stuff left-handed. You're like, I didn't know you could do that. Well, I wasn't that guy. You'd be like, all right, Booney, I know why you 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 don't switch hit. But I would do that to, for just to your point, from a psychological standpoint, get out of my head how bad I am right now, you know, with my, with my normal right-handed swing and just go into a different place. And all of a sudden, by the end of that five or ten minutes, I'm starting to square balls up going, oh, now I'm like a little kid having fun. Like, oh, can I do this? Can I do that? And I've and I've had for the first time probably in a week uh, a carefree round where I wasn't thinking of I wasn't coming out of there sweating because I was working so hard. It's it's such a thing. I mean, I mean hitting is is so awesome and it's so hard. Um, oh, and it's, and it's yeah. so psychological and it's all based on results and confidence and and yeah, hitting balls hard when you're going good and and making it out. That's one thing. But I know we've all been in that position where we're not going good. Then all of a sudden we start squaring it up and they're still catching it. And it seems like there's 50, 50 defenders out there. Oh, there's no there's no worse feeling than that. Yeah. The 50 defender thing is is accurate. It's like a football team out there. You're like, what the hell? This is baseball, man. It should be nine guys. It feels like, you know, there's 12 guys in the outfield, 12 guys in the infield, you know, and, and what, and guys are over the fence, sitting on the fence, robbing home runs. Uh, but I, I think one of the great points you made is finding a way to get back to fun because when you're over 15, when you're going through that, baseball isn't fun. You know, it's like, wow, this is a grind. This is work. You know, when it's going easy and it's fun, any, anyway, I mean, everyone has a good time in baseball when they're having fun. The hard part is 
the separation of what makes a great ball player from an average ball player is being able to get through those tough times mentally. And that mental grind of, hey, listen, I'm just going to keep working. I'm going to keep finding a way. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, when you get through that grind and you're grinding, it is good to go hit left-handed or go do something stupid where you're like, you know what? I got to remember how it was being a kid again and loving this game. Because right now, I don't love this game because I'm not finding success. So how do I figure out a way to have fun and get that dopamine in my head to go, man, I get to, I get to work. You know, this is my job. I get to play baseball for a living and trying to find that happiness again. But sometimes it ain't easy. And that's why also good teammates, you know, good teammates can come to the, you know, save you in a lot of ways by finding that way to bring back the fun. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I always look to, you know, there's, there's guys and, and we've all played with them. Uh, when things are good, they got that radio cranked up and, and they're, they're doing the, they're doing the worm on the floor. <laughs> but, but when we lose and, and they're over 15, you know, they're that sad guy in the corner. And, and I'd always take those guys and say, listen, we're in the big leagues here and we're all, you know, I, I have a little bit of a compassion for the young player. We we're all young players at one point. And, and we're just trying to find our way and, and we're young for a reason. But once we get to a certain point and, and I, you know, the one thing I, I'm asked all the time, you know, my dad played longer than I did. He played 19 years and they said, oh, it must have been great growing up. I said, you know what? My dad never taught me one thing. He didn't talk, teach me how to hit, didn't teach me how to field, didn't teach me anything about the baseball game. I went out. It was trial and error. It was repetition. I sure. said, but you know what he taught me? He taught me to walk and talk and behave like a professional. And that's the one thing I got from him. My dad exuded that. He was respected uh, across the game. And just the way he carried himself, good, bad, and different. You know, he wasn't that guy that was pouting after a bad game. I wouldn't see it. I mean, probably in the clubhouse, you know, he had, we all have our ways of dealing with the ups and downs of a 162-game schedule. But the way he handled himself, that's the one thing I look to and got from my father. And the players that I played with that I respected the most were the guys that did that. I remember uh, a teammate of mine, Mike Cameron, who was one of my oh, favorite, one best. of my favorite teammates. The best teammate. And, and I'll tell you what, Cammy can strike out. <laughs> <laughs> and I tease him about it. We'd sit in saunas for day for days after games like Booney. Man, I can't hit the ball. <laughs> I'd laugh at it. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing about Mike. He could strike out in in a, two games seven times go over eight and the next day he'd walk into that locker room with his headphones on shades that big smile and go ladies and yeah. gentlemen i'll tell you what i haven't been very good lately but today's a new day and i've got a chance i respected the hell out of that because that's tough to do you can fake it but it seemed genuine and i think that's where guys in the clubhouse that become leaders you know you talk about oh he's a leader now the leader isn't the guy that stands up and gives speeches the leader's no. a guy you look about how he goes about his business and how he handles it and it doesn't matter how many hits he gets or how many hits he doesn't get obviously to be a leader you probably have to be a good player to start with but it's Correct. the way you go about your business and i think that's so important uh yeah, leading by leading by example is a lot bigger at the professional level Right. You know, you can get the rah-rah guys in high school and stuff like that that could be leaders. And, you know, they probably go on to be really good businessmen and do all kinds of great things. But once you get to the highest level, there's something about the player that goes about it professionally every single day, plays hard, 
um, you know, goes about it in a way that, and everyone's so unique, you know, some, some people it's the personality thing. Uh, I never believed in the personality thing as a leader. I think, you know, charisma and all that is great at times, but go to politics. If you want to get into the charisma thing, um, I want guys that are going to go out there, play, play as hard as they can and show that they, they're going to do every little thing, take the extra base, you know, not swing at the three, one slider because a guy on third base and, they're rolling over. They're going to take that pitch, take that walk, and let the next guy do their job. Those are the type of guys that it becomes infectious too. Uh, you know, we were lucky, you know, with the Red Sox and Cam. I played with, and the funny part about Cam was just always remember that Michael Jackson. He always put it on the bus every single time we get on, man, just to get that positive vibes. Win or loss, it didn't matter. He's putting that on, and uh, you know, for me in Boston too, it was Pedroia. Uh, you know, playing alongside him all those years. Uh, you know, we had Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz, two two different guys, but great leaders in the sense of the way they were two of the best hitters of all time. Uh, so that was that was easy to have those two on the team. Uh, Manny was always a little, you know, interesting at times. Uh, we never knew what we were going to get, but uh, yeah. The, the, and Jason Veritek was the captain of our team, and Jason was he, Jason. Was, he just doesn't talk a lot. You know, he he's he's not a guy that's going to be very boisterous and like loud and but. The way he carried himself, the way he prepared the pitchers, the way he didn't take BP some days because he had to go catch some bullpens and work with a guy. Those leadership skills were were just absolutely amazing. And uh, that's why Jason Veritek's a great coach now with the Red Sox uh, and doing good things. And it, it really isn't about what you and, – and there's times you have to say the right things. You know, you got to pull a teammate aside and, and try to – you know, get them going in the right direction. And, and Tech was really good at that. Tech Tech didn't say a lot, but when he did, people listened. Yeah, Tech, you're giving me he's he's one of he's a, he's an example I use when when we're talking hitting and the and the and the mental side of the game because when I left that on deck circle, the second half of my career, I had an approach and I had a thought and I had a plan. And win, lose, or draw, I was not gonna waver from that plan. But sometimes I'd get in the box and, and Jason, he was really good because he'd watch me. He watched my body language. He'd watch how I took pitches. And it seemed like, you know, I'd take I'd come up bases loaded and take a take a fastball down the middle. Why? Because I'm sitting on a breaking ball. Yep, yep. <laughs> and tech in his mind went ding, ding, ding. Wait a minute. Booney taking a heater down the middle with the bases loaded. Something ain't right. <laughs> and he kind of give me that look like. uh Weren't looking for that, were you? Oh no! Now my plan has to change because it's a chess match. And and you bring up Jason; he's one of the one of the the catchers. Probably I can count on one hand that it was a battle outside of just basic hitting. It was okay. He's going to play this game with me, and I've got to counter his moves. It was, but that's the game inside the game, and that's you know that we can go on forever about that. But uh, when you mentioned his name, I thought it was I thought it was unique. Manny, you're right. I mean, Edgar Martinez was my guy. But I watched Manny and they were pretty darn similar. How good of right-handed hitters they were and, and the way he'd follow his his uh, his plan in the box was amazing to me. I watched him for years and years and I thought this guy just doesn't waver. He's got a, he's got an idea what he wants to do and he sticks to it and he'd punch oh. out. He'd punch out and smile oh. going back to the bench. And I tell oh. my kid, I tell my unbelievable. I tell my pitchers, I'd say, listen. Don't think you got this great slider today because you, punch, <laughs> you punched Manny out twice. I said, because in the eighth inning, you throw that same pitch, it's not coming back. And I just want you to be aware of that. He's he's waiting in the weeds for something. Oh, 
He he would strike out on his first at bat with three fastballs. Like just three fastballs. And as a young player and as a fastball hitting guy that I was, I was like, What are you doing? What, are you, what the heck is that? I was like, Oh my God, what is he doing? And calmly, he would calmly walk back to the dugout. Meanwhile, I'm fired up. Like if I took three fastballs down the middle, I would be so mad at myself. I'd be I'd be so angry. Like, you know, and, and when I got mad, it was I was so mad at myself. Like I was always just hard on myself. Uh people are like, Man, you were so angry. Like I was like, Yeah, I was so mad at myself. I'm like you know, and I just wore it on my sleeve. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't always pretty. Um, and I know uh, it rubbed people the wrong way a lot of times. And I laugh now about it. But uh, and then next at bat, he'd get a curveball and hit it 500 feet. And you're like, he was just waiting for that pitch. And he was OK giving up his first at bat to have that result in the second at bat. And it, it was so meticulous how he would do it. And you're right. There were so many things. But it also is some guys can do that. And, and and watching Manny, it was it was a it was a blessing and a curse because you're like, wow, look at what he could do. And then I'd always try to be like, man, I was like, wait, how does he do that? How do you, and then? But the good thing was is, and, and not to toot my own horn, I was smart enough to know that I couldn't be Manny, but I would take the things that he would do and try to apply it to how I would try to hit. And that's how I got to be a better hitter was watching him and saying, okay, I can't do this like. Uh, just my load couldn't be the same the way I got back. But okay, how does he stay through the ball? How does he do it? That, and so utilizing that while you, you like understanding how my body works, the kinesiology of how I operate and how I work and trying to apply it in the same way. And it did get me to another level because of that. I'd watch and watch and watch and take all this in, but not try to you know mimic them completely. I think that's one thing for young players is, Watch what players do and see how your body can do it, but do it your own way. Because if you always try to mimic somebody, you'll always fall a little short. Agreed. Uh, Moneyball. That's when you got <laughs> mentioned, and I know I don't, I don't, I don't think you particularly like it. But it was the Greek, <laughs> not really Greek, Greek god of walks. You've turned that into the Greek god of hops. Uh, what they get right, what they get wrong. Uh, the Greek guy to walks. Wow. It was, uh, well, no, it's just, uh, it was one of those things that, well, the funny part is I'm not Greek. Um, my last name is of Greek origin per se. Uh, my, my ancestry goes back to Romania of Jewish heritage. And I guess there was a civil war and there was a name change. And so Euclid became, so all the Euclid, if you see a Euclid, we're all related. So it's pretty easy in that sense. But, um, I think it, it wasn't that they didn't get something right or wrong. You know, I had a good eye. Uh, I was always blessed with good eyesight and I had a good approach. Uh, I learned in college that, hey, why am I going to start swinging at these pitches that aren't, even if it's a strike, if it's down and away on a fastball that I can't drive early on, do I really need to hit this pitch or am I going to roll over to shortstop? So, okay, I'm going to take this pitch to try to get to a new one. Uh, I would, I would, you know, the analytics that, you know, it was kind of analytical in some ways of like, okay, well, he's establishing out, out, out. He's not coming in. So I'm looking away or I'm looking in. And, um, you know, so the funny part about the whole thing was it started because in my first, you know, my rookie season of uh, minor leagues and short season, a ball at Lowell, I walked like 70 times and I always joke around. I'm like, guys, it wasn't because of me. They were scared of me. I was like, have you ever played short season, a ball? The ball is flying all over the map. Um, you got a bunch of young hurlers throwing the ball, and they can't throw strikes. So, 
you know, I want to get hits, but I also know one thing. If I get on base, I'm an extreme competitor. I like winning. I hate losing. So I don't want to just get out, you know, just try to get a hit. I want to get on base and score runs. And so that was the what they got right was, you know, I, I would get a lot of walks because I saw a walk as good as a hit. That was always my philosophy was getting on base. If they're not going to give you anything to hit, get on base, try to help your team win. So that was right. Uh, and, and not that they got it wrong in any way, per se, the Greek out of walks. It just became a fan thing where they got it wrong. I would come on deck at the major league level and somebody would be like, hey, man, get a walk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be well, like, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what? I'm like, you know, and, and I just got ribbed a lot. Like Doug Mirabelli always said, he was so funny about it. He was always like, you're the first player ever to walk their way to the big leagues. And that was always like the running joke. Um, like, yeah, great. He can walk. No, I mean, but your minor league, your first two seasons, 512 OBP and a 436. It, it is kind of ridiculous. But uh, no, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was, it's it was stupid. The, the walking thing, it, you know, it's so good. And there's so much uh, in our day. It was about average homers and ribbies. That's what it was. Correct. That's how yep. you were. That's how you got paid. And uh, it's changed. I don't understand the ribby thing. I don't understand how that's changed. I don't either. No I don't either. And I'll tell you what, have that debate with Albert Pujols right now, and he will chew your ear off. Ribbies are important. Here's a guy that's got over 2,000. I always yeah. think the ribby is the ribby. The guys that drive the men in, in the big situations when the when the, the pitchers are bearing down on you, that is where you get paid in my eyes. Now, it doesn't matter because I'm not making those decisions at this point. But, uh, right. that's you know, the, that's- it. it it's changed a lot. I mean, it was always about, all right, how'd you do? Well, what, what was it? It was average homers, ribbies. Okay, you got right. those three categories, and there were magic numbers for us. 300, obviously, is a magic number. Uh, probably in the early 2000s, you hit 20 home runs. Okay, here we go. Uh, it, it, and then the ribbies, the, the 100, that was magic. You know, if you hit that 100, doesn't mean if, if, you, if you drove in 98, it was a bad year, but you hit that 100 mark, that was like, woo. That's pay dirt. That's it's almost like an OBP of, of 400. Now you hit you're on base 400. That's getting it done. The one thing about it is, and I've learned and, and correct me if I'm wrong for a guy that walked a lot yourself. I didn't. I was a 60 walk guy. Um, gotcha. you know, I struck out right around 100 for the most of my career. And I felt like I man, normal. I, I, that, that, was normal. Not, that was nothing in today's game. But man, I felt like I went back to the dugout a lot right at 100. I improved on my walks as I as I grew and, and matured as a player. But I came to the conclusion one day that I'm never going to be that hunter walk. I, I'm just not. If I try to be, it's going to take away from who I am. I used to have this debate with uh, not debate, but we used to have fun with it. Johnny Olerud, one of my favorite guys of oh, all time, best. too. The and best. Johnny would not swing at a 3-1, 3-0 pitch if it was a half an inch out of the out of the zone where I was quite the contrary and, and me and Johnny joke with each other said, could you imagine if we could put you and me together and have some <laughs> sort of, we'd be lethal. You know, if I could have just a little better eye and you could be a little more aggressive, then we'd give have you, something. It, give Johnny a little more speed too. <laughs> right. It, it, right. And I laugh at the, the, you know, the, uh, the Vladimir Guerrero's of the world who, who, who would walk 20 times a year. He's one of the Nomar. greatest, one of the greatest players I ever played against. Yeah. Nomar uh, Garcia Parra. It's, it's just really interesting. You can't teach people to be a walk. I think you're born with that eye uh, and, and everybody else, you can improve on it. You can improve on, on, 
honing in on your zone, but I don't think it's one of those things where, well, I, you need to walk more. Well, what does that mean to me? If I go no. up there looking to walk, I'm O2 before I know what hit me. If that no, you got to be select. You got to be selectively aggressive. You right. got to have a game plan. So it all starts with a game plan. It, stand, it starts with a scouting report, knowing your deficiencies, knowing their strengths, how they go about it, where they pitch, where they like to pitch. When they get into trouble, what is their pitch? When they're ahead, what do they like to do? You know, past times you work. With. That's the chess game, and understanding that too. But also understanding that analytics, and I would say this too. Analytics can get you in a bad spot if you solely rely on the percentages from the past. You have to watch the end game. If this guy is not establishing a slider that day, and that is his out pitch, he's bouncing it, he's leaving it up. Well, what do we do as hitters? If I keep going with the percentages of like, oh, he's throwing this 55%, 60%, and this at bat, I go, wait, wait, hold on. He hasn't thrown one for a strike. So if I see that spin, I got to spit on it until he can establish that pitch again. It could be my last at bat. You know, he might come back to it and it's like, okay, well, now we have to establish back to, okay, now I got to be prepared for that slider again in the strike zone. But if he's not establishing that or the changeup, those things are the past, you know, analytics are of past, not of current and future. So that is one of the keys as a hitter too. And being a smart hitter is understand. And that's how you walk more, in my opinion. You walk more by watching the game, understanding the game, talking to your teammates in game and going, okay, he cannot get this pitch over. He cannot throw this change of first strike today. So now what am I doing? I'm eliminating. If I see that this that little bit of a hesitation where I can read that change up, I'm just not even swinging because I need him to show me that he can throw that for a strike before I'm going to even try to attempt to swing at that pitch. And so – I agree. I, I think, you know, I've been asked that so many times people are like, Hey, you know, we need you to, you know, come in here and we want our hitters to walk more. I'm like, well, you think I'm going to be the guy that's going to get guys right, to you, walk more? You like, got a magic wand. I don't have that magic wand. I said, that's the player that I was. I can explain to you how I can get your on base percentage up. You can lean into a couple more pitches a year. Maybe <laughs> the easier way, right. just get hit by a pitch. That will help. I mean, that's your on-base percentage. That's the easiest. I mean, I, we, I think we both are good at that one. Um, and then, sorry. Um, but the big one is, honestly, it's really, like you said, it's understanding what the pitcher's doing and how to get yourself in better hitters' counts that they have to come. And, and like you said, if you're a swing if you're a swing guy, you're going to get yourself in to get more hits, but you're also going to give yourself the opportunity by having a better approach and understanding what's going on to draw a few more walks. You know, you're not going to make huge strides. You know, it's just those little strides of a little less strikeouts and a little more walks. Yeah, without a doubt. I laugh at the percentages that, that, that you were mentioned. Oh, 55% of the time you throw. How about this? How about the last time you threw me a breaking ball was ricocheting off a facade? Do you think he's yeah. going to throw me that breaking ball this time, bud? I don't care what his percentages say. He remembers what happened last at bat. Correct. You know, and, and most big league pitchers, once you hurt them on a pitch, they tend to shy away from it. Now, the great ones, uh, there are exceptions. Um, the Pedros of the world in our game, uh, the Maddox, the Smoltz. Holiday. I'll tell you what, I, 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 David Wells used to do it to me and it would drive me crazy. He'd throw me a pitch. I'd hit it nine miles. And the next at bat, I'd be like, well, he's not coming back with that pitch. He'd throw me three in a <laughs> row. 
and yep. just be smiling at me on the on the uh, on the mound. So I, I agree with you. It's just these percentages are so ridiculous that, oh, 82 percent of the time in a two one county. No, no. Is it a two one count with a base open in the eighth right. inning and in the, in the winning run on second base? Or is it the leadoff hitter, the first pitch of the game? I mean, I mean it's it's apples to oranges. So, yeah, throw, the, throw those out the way. You think uh, you think Moneyball in any capacity has made the game better? That that the Moneyball concept. Oh, I, I think it's it, to me the it, it's something that has always been ingrained in like the sense of if you break it down simplistic, like in a, in a simplistic like mindset, it's it, it's it. it I mean, it is really simplistic. Get on base more. Give your give your team more opportunity to score runs. At the end of the day, that's all it means. That's all it is, really. Like honestly, it, it, if you it, it's giving a little more credence to guys that can draw more walks, maybe per se. But it's also, but what? But I think that's a giant bubble, right? Like some guys draw more walks because they're just they're an absolute threat every time they get up to bat, right? So like an Aaron Judge is not a guy that takes takes a lot. He swings. You know, he's going to be swinging. He's going to be ready to hit from, from, you know, pitch one. But he draws walks because he can hit the ball 500 feet, you know. So you have the respect factor, too. Um, and, and how you establish yourself of being able to, you know, drive in runs, you know. And then that goes back to the RBI thing. Every guy, every guy like, you know, Brett, you could, you could, Booney, you could literally go on your team and go, this is not the guy we went up right now. This is the guy we went up right now, you know, and I and, and that's where I don't understand the RBI comment because every every team knows what guys they want up to bat in those crucial situations, and every team knows which guys fold under pressure and just don't put together good at bats, and that is also a byproduct of the Moneyball concept. Is to me honestly, the the Moneyball concept is have good at bats, try to have the highest amount of quality at bats possible, which will lead to better on base percentages. And, and to take it one further, you talk about the RBIs and, and average has been has been discounted in today's game. I still I, I still don't know why on that, because, yes, I, I understand behind, what's behind the OBP and getting on base. Yes, I, I see the positivity in that. But it, you, you'll you know, you'll see a lot of guys today. You know, there's only a few 300 hitters and the and the. And the drop off from the 300 in, in our day, it was or in my day, I'll say it was the 300 plus hitters. And then the guys, the next tier was around 280. Then the average of the league was around 250. The really bad hitters. I mean, if you hit 230, 220, you stink. Yeah, you better hit 40. Right. That has changed now. But I still look at they'll look at a 220 hitter. Well, is he's still on base 330. Okay. Well, let's let's take it one more step. It's the ninth inning. You've got the best pitcher on their team on the mound. He's not going to walk you. You're a 220 hitter, but you yeah, got a high back. you got a high on base percentage. That's great, but you're not going to walk off the elite guys. I want that guy with a three in front of his average hitting in the biggest situation in the game because he has proven he has the best chance to get a hit, not get a walk, get a hit. Correct. So I still think average is very important. And it the fact that they've cheapened it to that to the point that they have kind of bothers me because I don't think they think about the big picture. I just think of well, on base is more. Yeah, for a lot of the game it is for for facing that number three starter, that guy that can get on base, man, he's invaluable. But I want to talk about coming in against Mariano at the end of the game. Mariano ain't gonna walk you. 
He's not no. going to walk you. So those walks, it doesn't matter how much he walks. Now we got to hit and you're hitting 212. I don't want you at the plate. I want that guy hitting 306 at the plate. Yeah, and, and, and that's the big thing, too, is and we've all played with these guys that, oh, he's he's luckier. He's no. luckier. That's why he has 300. I'm like, <laughs> so so you're hitting 240 and you if you were more lucky, you would hit 260. Right. Here's a rabbit's foot. See you if know, that changes I, it. You know, no, these guys consistently find a way to square up the ball or compete in the box. Because this is the big thing about exit velocity. You know, if you go really a, 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 and dissect the exit velocity, and I've and, and broadcasting helped me with this a lot this year, was going on baseball savant and and you know, you see that you see the the exit velocity on every single at bat. The exit velocities are highest on what? Ground balls. It is shocking when you watch how many ground balls have some of the highest X velocities in the game. And then I said to myself, okay, so we, so there's this theory, don't hit ground balls, but it's also the highest exit velocity as possible. But at the end of it, all it means is what? Try to square the ball up as much as possible. But also, too, the greatest hitters know that they can't take that A swing in order to give themselves the highest percentage. This is analytics the highest percentage of finding a good result. When you're getting that down and away slider out your front foot, if you take a big swing like your A swing, you're probably going to roll over the ball. Right. You have a high percentage of rollover. And then but, you're, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But if I have that out in front running man stay through it nice and easy swing, now my result percentage goes up because I gave myself the opportunity to flick that ball into center field or right center field, or right field. But that is what they don't talk about enough of because that's how you have a higher batting average. That's how you get on base more to compete for your team. Taking an A swing in that situation is a swing and miss, rollover, or a pop fly, you know, weak pop fly to opposite field. I'm a firm believer that give me those guys, and it's been proven with the Houston Astros, why they have time and time again been at the World Series or close to it, less strikeouts competing in the box. Yep. And and that cracks me up too, because the uh, nine out of 10 commentators, when you talk about that slider low and away that you take your big swing on and you're going to roll over, why'd you take that big swing? First of all, you were probably fooled. You probably read fastball out of the hand and you still swung. But what does that guy in the booth say? Well, he's trying to pull everything. And I, and I, and I go crazy. I think what not one good hitter, I've ever run across in the history of my life has ever said, well, I'm going to go up there and try to pull it. No, we get fooled. We recognize fastball. It's a slider. We keep going. We roll over it. We're we're struggling. The commentator says, well, he's trying to pull everything. And I just I pull my hair out. I go, don't you realize that he's fooled? And that's why he did it. (laughs) He's just trying to make contact. (laughs) Right. Right. And, And by the way, on that low. And I don't know if you've seen this, but check it out. That low that 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 reading on the ground ball is always the highest X velocity. Also, yep. watch when they're pitching the gun from home plate. That high heater, it doesn't register as high. That low fastball always registered as a high. Yeah. If it's ninety six, it's always ninety eight. Right? I don't know. It's something about it and how the radar radar guns are set up. All right. Um, when you were finished playing, you got into the beer business. You get you have a brewery, Loma Brew, uh, in Los Gatos. 
I've had a few guys on the program, uh, Rick Meyer and, and Drew Bledsoe and their big wine guys. Seems like a lot of ex ball players now are in the wine business. You're in the brewery business. Tell me how that came about, why you did it, and how much you knew about about that industry before you before you jumped into it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's actually funny. It's, it's kind of ironic that you brought up the wine thing. Uh, so one year, I actually. Um, uh, spend an off season out in uh, Glen Ellen, a town in Sonoma. Uh, try to get away. It was like uh, after that uh, crushing 2011 season where we were like the best team in baseball. And I got injured at the end of the year and had to watch that, uh, that crazy debacle of going down. And, um, and I started dating my, my wife now. And so I came out here and just got away from the world. And, uh, you know, and, and what I realized was, out in wine country, I learned that how long it takes for wine to, to, to be made. And I said, man, I just don't, I have a lot of patience in the box. Like when I'm hitting, I don't have that patience in life off the field, which is one <laughs> of the funny it, I things. I want it now, now. Yeah. So I was like, oh my God. So you got to grow these vines. You got to do this. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm out of that business. That's, that's way too long for me. I don't know if I'm going to die before I see this thing come to fruition. So, uh, uh, I was always a craft beer lover. Uh, we go around to di- you know different cities, and uh, the the one that you know when we were playing was Kansas City with Boulevard Brewing Company. They always had it in the clubhouse, and so all the guys you know were always domestic. You know, it was either Coors Light, Miller Light, Bud Light, and I just I just wasn't a fan. Like I, I liked good, high quality craft beer, um, and so you know going around city to city, uh, you know going out and having some beers with some teammates, I'd always just be like, Hey, what, you know, what's the craft beer. And so I would try Seattle had some great stuff too. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. And in my time in Boston, I home brewed one time at my house on an off day with Rocco Baldelli. Uh, so we brewed an IPA at our, you know, did it at our house and it came out pretty good. Uh, which, and so I, I just said, you know what, one and done. I, I, I got, I got one beer at the quality. I'm not doing that again, but, uh, what I, what I thought about was, uh, after done playing, I need to do something. I can't sit around. I can't play golf every day. Uh, it's just not my thing. Uh, I'll play, but I just, I can't do it every day. And I, I really want to have a job. I want to have something that, you know, fulfills my time and, uh, and once in life. And so I decided to open up a, you know, this brewery, Loma Brewing Company here in Los Gatos, which is right outside San Jose, California. Um, but it, it was really just the fact that, I went to the Great American Beer Fest in Colorado, and I just saw like there's a thousand breweries from around the country that serve their beer. But what I noticed was the camaraderie. You know, people are competing in a sense of, hey, we want to get our beers on shelves. We want to sell more. You know, we want to sell as much beer as possible. But the people within the industry were really cool. And uh, it, it was almost like it's craft beer versus the big dogs. And since I've always been the underdog in my life, uh, you know, the scouts down there couldn't do it, colleges saying this and that, I felt like, wow, this, I connect. I really connect with this, this craft beer crowd because it is the underdog mentality of craft beer versus domestics and the, and the big guys in the industry. Uh, so I decided to, you know, do a lot of research, get into it. And my brother helped me. He was in the restaurant business and a chef. Uh, so we created this brew pub here. Uh, where it's a 7,000 square feet facility, 1,100 of it is for the brewery. So a small brewery, not, not big enough, but we just, uh, you know, six years ago, this past August is when we started it. Um, kind of had to hit the reset button. COVID just totally took down everything. 
Uh, but it was also good too. We've, we've learned a lot along the way and how to now make better profits and better decisions moving forward. So as much as COVID was probably one of the hardest uh, times of our lives, Santa Clara County was awful uh, with their the regulations, but we got through it and uh, we're, we're moving past it. But it, it just all started with the passion and the love for craft beer. And uh, I joke around, I probably drink less beer than I ever have. Um, and I own a brewery. So, but you know, as uh, Notorious B.I.G. said, you never want to get high on your own supplies. So I've kind of kept my kept my kept my understanding of that saying. So you, be, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me because I know nothing about wine. I know it's a long process. I know nothing about brewing brew. I knew you know what <laughs> what I did drink. I, I knew it was hey, give me one of those. Um, how much have you learned? And do you know? Oh, this is a good batch. This this sucks, or is it? I I don't even. Isn't that not even a a good question to ask in the brewery business? No, no, totally. No, it's a really good question because uh, yeah. So I have a good palate. So I always joke around. I have a really good palate. I just cannot put the adjectives to the descriptions and stuff. I'm not. I'm not that fancy. I, I I'm a Cincinnati kid. I'm, I'm a simplistic type person with, I guess, a, a glorified palate. Maybe I don't know. Uh, but I can tell, like I can, there's, there's a lot of times, like for instance, the IPAs, the India pale ales, uh, probably one of the most popular beers styles. And now there's all different variations of them. But, um, the one thing I learned along the way was when you have a really good IPA and that, in that, in there's, you know, you have the hazy IPAs, which are less bitter now, and they're more fruit forward. Those uh, tend to, you know, uh, you know, hit a lot more of a demographic. Uh, then you got the West coast IPA, which is more bitter. Um, and the West Coast IPA, it has that strong bitter taste to it. If if you have a lingering, like if you have this lingering bitter taste on the back of your tongue after you drink it, it's not as high quality. When you have that strong bitterness that hits you and it dissipates, that is a very well done IPA. Um, so that's one thing that I've learned along the way. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it, everything's education after baseball. You know, we, we were experts in our field. I always joke around. I was like, I got my doctorate in baseball. Um, even though we, I, we, you know, I need to bring that up to the MLBPA. We, we need, to, you know, the, the players association needs to start giving us certificates of our doctorates. <laughs> so we can, we can call it Dr. Boone, you know, That's right. Give, yeah, me my gold, give me my gold card and my doctorate. <laughs> yes. We should have certificates. Yeah. We should have certificates that we got our doctorates. When we get that gold card, the eight years, right. You get your doctorate too. Um, but yeah, so I have a lot, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about the business side of things. Um, I have a lot of great people. Uh, Daniel Canary, the, uh, the owner of Harpoon Brewing Company in Boston has been a huge influence, um, in helping me out along the way. Um, you know, and, and I, all I do is just pick people's brains. You know, there's so many people that are so much smarter and, and the great part of being a major league baseball player after you play is there's a lot of people that want to connect with you and they'll give you a ton of information on what they know and what they've done and been successful in their career. So that's something I tell a lot of, you know, when I go, I've talked to summit before to, you know, the players that are moving on to their next careers is don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, a lot of times we, we think we're a lot smarter than we are, but we're really only as smart in our field. And so be vulnerable and just be a really good, you know, you know, really good at listening and, and trying to, and, and there's so many people out there that want to just be your, you know, be your buddy and be your mentor because they want to hear your baseball stories while you can gain information about business from them. Yeah, great point. Uh, you mentioned you grew up in Cincinnati. You went to the University of Cincinnati. You're an All-American there. Um, you get drafted by the 
by the Boston Red Sox in the eighth round. You signed, you mentioned earlier, for 12000 Yeah, going back. Yeah, first round pick, 2023. It's a little different than 12000 <laughs> And that's another thing. Man, it's amazing. It's it just shows you how much money's in the game with the, with the contracts you're seeing. It's like, Oh, you know, and, and I never, it, it's not a thing with me where I'm bitter. It's like, no, I, yeah, I, you know, I made some good money in the early two thousands, but wow, today it's, it's a completely different ball game. Um, you go to the minor leagues two years, I believe your minor league player of the year for the Red Sox. Uh, and you get called to the big leagues in Oh, four. Francona is your first skipper. I want to talk a little bit about him, but but there's some history on the horizon now. I mean, Theo Epstein's the the GM. Red Sox, who, who's involved in now, uh, present to date, two curses being eliminated, both under Theo Epstein's on Theo Epstein's watch. But that 04 season, I know you didn't play in the World Series. You guys won still to to this day. Uh, one of the most maybe top three impressive sport feats I've ever seen. First was, uh, well, I don't even know. I forget what the other two are, but I always look to that series in 04. Uh, when the Red Sox are down 3-0 and they come back and beat the Yankees 4-3, go on and sweep the World Series. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever I've ever seen. It's like that doesn't happen. Maybe you're down 0-2, down 0-3, it's over. It's over. It's just a matter of how long do you want to fight before you go home? That team was different. They did it. They won. Uh, talk about your first your first skipper in Francona for a bit. Actually, I was just on a trip up to Pebble Beach, and I got to catch up with them for a minute. We were just on the putting green before a round. I hadn't seen them in a while, but but uh, talk about Francona and that group of guys. You know, it, it changed to the 07 where you win a, another World Series. But that was Miller and, and Damon and Pedro. And we had Roberts on the show stealing that big bag. What do you remember about 04 in that World Series? Well, yeah, I mean, for the moment, I got caught up on May 15th, you know, hitting hitting a home run off Pat Hankin, facing Roy Halladay the next day. My feet never hit the ground. I mean, I mean, I was on, I was in the clouds the whole time. I mean, living my dream that I always dreamed of, being around some of the most amazing veterans you'll ever. I mean, I I was the, I was the only. I mean, it was myself and Lenny Donardo. We were the rookies, and everyone else had four or five years in. Right, there wasn't a lot of young players. So, I mean, we got we got crushed all the time with, you know, the rookie duties and stuff like that. But it was it was awesome. I loved every minute of it. I was in a Hooters outfit in my second day going through customs in Toronto. So every bit, every part of it was just amazing uh, from the guys, you know, making me play cribbage all the time with them uh, to to accepting me. But, you know, yeah, you're right. You had Pedro. You had Kurt Schilling. Yeah. You know, Tim Wakefield. You had. You know, one of the younger players, Bronson Arroyo, you know, was was around in that time. And uh, but it was the Johnny Damons. It was the Bill Millers, Trot Nixon. There, well, it was, uh, going on. was Folk the closer on that team? Keith Folk was Keith there. Folk, yeah. Al- Alan Embry, Mike Timlin. Yep. Kurt, Kurt Laskanik, um, you know, Myers, you know, the, the, it was all veterans. So the greatest part of it was I had so many guys that wanted to see me succeed. And they were going to help me along the way. Um, you know, some of it, and Dave McCarty was a big one too. They, you know, he was, he was hilarious. We'd always hang out Mirabelli and, um, and tag. I mean, you go around the right and Bark Bellhorn and I hung out probably the most out of everybody. Uh, so we had just, we just had a really good group of guys, but eclectic 
one of the most eclectic group of personalities you'll ever see. Uh, you know, Millar always called the idiots and stuff like that, but it, it just was an amazing group of guys that, you know, it, it wasn't always, you know, like getting along and all that. It was, it, you know, you, you had your goofballs and David, you know, like David and Manny too. Like, I think I've named the whole team now, but um, it's basically a wild group of guys, but it all came together on the field and everyone was always fighting for each other to win, to go out there and just do amazing things. And I'll tell you what, I mean, what I learned from that team the most was how to be professional, you know, how, how to go about the right way how to win it over the fan base of Boston by just playing hard, putting your head down and just doing, doing your work. Uh, and those guys were great at that. They, they gave me a lot of good advice along the way. They showed me the path that was going to show me the best way to succeed um, at the highest level. And uh, I'm just forever grateful to that whole group of guys because, uh, you know, not even just the memory of the World Series – it's just it's just what they gave me in my back pocket for years to come after that that allowed me to become uh, the player I became down the road. We jump forward to that 07 uh, season. You won we won a gold glove that year, um, and it was you end up sweeping the Rockies in the World Series, go through the Indians and the Angels, uh, and it's a little bit of a different look. You know, the Veritex and the Mannies and the Ortiz are still there. I believe Schilling and Wake are still on that team. Papelbon's yep. now the closer versus Folk. You know, Damon's long gone, but you got, uh, I don't know, just a different look, a different feel, same result. Um, take me through that 07 season. Was there a difference in the 04? Obviously, for you, from a playing standpoint, there was a big yeah. difference. But as far as from a city standpoint, I mean, winning uh, – all of a sudden you win, you win two world series in a four year span. That's when people start to talk about dynasty when Boston hadn't won one forever. All of a sudden there's two in a four year span. Uh, talk about the differences of those two teams and, uh, and, and I don't know the differences of those two world series. Yeah, it was definitely a different team. And you had Mike Lowell at third base, you know, Billy Miller was gone. Uh, you had Julio Lugo at shortstop. Uh, you know, the, the Nomar Orlando Cabrera thing was gone. Uh, second base was not, you know, Bellhorn. It was now Pedroia. Uh, myself was at first base. It wasn't Millar. And then, you know, Trot Nixon was on the Indians who we, you know, we were down three to one. You know, it, it both both times was not easy. You know, we were down three to one in Cleveland, um, you know, going into the, the game five. And, uh, you know, my first at bat, I, I hit a home run in that game five off CC. You know, I took CC deep to left, and that just it just got the wheels turning. Um, I mean, everyone just started picking it up and going after that, and it was awesome. But uh, it, it, you know, both both world, you know, getting to the World Series uh, was not easy. We had to overcome a lot of adversity, um, a little harder in 04 than 07, but still being down three to one and to come back and win three straight was crazy. Uh, but yeah, it, it was it was a different feel. It wasn't the same, I don't think, in the sense of. You know, we had like Dice K. Matsuzaka on that team. And then we had Okajima. You know, we, we didn't have the name guys like we did in 04. There was a lot of big names. Um, you know, and there was it was just a collective effort of good, good ball players. You know, we had Josh Beckett on the mound. Um, trying to think like Eric Hinsky was on that team. I, I mean, there was just a different group. It wasn't the bigger names like in 04. I think 04 had a lot more of the all-star veteran type players um, with, you know, we have David and Manny carry over too. It doesn't matter. These are two Hall of Fame type players. So uh, we did have those players, but it, it was more of a collective effort of a bunch of 
uh, ball players that were on the way out and on and coming up too. You know, like Schilling was on his way out, um, but you know, Pedroia and myself were on the way up, uh, and Mike Wool was like right in the middle of his career, kind of like towards. Yeah, I mean, he was right in the middle of the peak of his career too. So, um, you know, Attack was on that team, and it, it just it, it it had a lot of the same feels with those like handful of players. But overall, it was just a whole new unit, and uh, it, it it just it just was a fascinating year. I mean, we we weren't you know, 06 was a very tough year. Uh, we we won, but it just wasn't the same. Uh, you know, there was a lot of turnover, and so 07 just just solidified just the next you know round of greatness in, in the Red Sox history, and it, it just was special. I mean, I, I remember just being in Colorado and. Uh, the, the, of course, the Boston media tried to get me because uh, I played the first two games at Fenway at first base, uh, and I was I was on fire. I think I was fourteen for twenty eight in, in the Cleveland series, uh, just absolutely on fire. You know, started the next two games, got some hits, and then the Boston media was like trying to get me to say something really dumb <laughs> because David had to play first base because it was National League. So <laughs> I just remember I was laughing. I was like, guys. We're in the World Series. I do not give a crap about anything right now other than us winning. So, and and luckily I said the right things. But, you know, as a player, you want to play. Of course I wanted to play. I wanted to be out there. I was on, I was, I felt good the, you know, at the plane. I wanted to play, but it's David Ortiz. So you learn real quick how to take a seat when you have a Hall of Famer playing in front of you. Maybe David, maybe the greatest postseason player ever. You know, yeah, exactly. Some, some of the things he did. Uh, oh, wait, probably your best season. Uh, you're an all star for the first time. You'll follow that up in 09 as an all star. In 11, you're an all star. You hit 300 the next three years 312, 305, and 307. But that 08 season, and, and I think this is a cool thing. It's an underrated award. Uh, you won the Hank Aaron Award. And I think it's so cool. There's a lot of luster that, you know, the Cy Young and the MVP, but the Hank Aaron Award's a big deal. And I don't think it gets its its, its due. Uh, talk about how important that was to you. I mean, I know I never won a Hank Aaron Award. I don't even know if they had it when I was playing, but <laughs> I never won one. But it, that's a cool award. Yeah, it was truly special. Um, I, I never played the game. I played the game for love. Um, I, I, I never like. I never played for awards. I, I really didn't. If I got recognized, I, I fell short so many times um, with awards, you know, growing up, uh, you know, people got more of them uh, and it hurts sometimes. But then I, what I realized was just go out and win. Winning is so much more fun. Um, so the Hank Aaron award was kind of interesting too, because that year we went to Japan uh, to open up the season after 07, which was probably the dumbest thing we could ever have done. Uh, I joked around when I got inducted to the Hall of Fame to the Red Sox ownership that I'm still mad that they made us go over there because I think we would have won in 08 if we didn't take that trip to Japan. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we got to game seven against Tampa. The hardest part, you know, about the Hank Aaron Award was I had to go accept it in Philly after we just lost in game seven of the ALCS. And as a competitor, I was like, oh, I do not want to see these guys. The Rays, we couldn't stand the Rays, right? We got in all these heated things, and I was like, ugh, I got to go on the field and look and see these guys across the way. But the coolest part of that award was meeting Hank Aaron, yeah. sitting down at a table talking to Hank Aaron. Um, 
you know, it's, it's in, like you said, it's truly an honor because you get voted on and the way you get voted on for that award is, is truly special. And so I, I'm forever grateful to all the people that voted for me in that award. I never had that kind of recognition in my life and it, it was truly an honor and special, but just sitting down and talking with Hank Aaron and how amazing of a human being he was, was everything about that award. It didn't matter about, you know, holding that trophy, getting all that stuff, that conversation that I got to have, for that short period of time with Hank Aaron was the most special moment of my career. Uh, Mid season in 2012, uh, you're moving over to the whites or to the, yeah, to the white Sox. white, white Sox. Yeah. Uh, drafted, come up through the organization as a kid, you know, nothing other than, than being a red Sox. Kind of, was it weird for you? All of a sudden, I now I got to go. Yeah. Play. You know, it, it's something you've always done. It's like, no, I'm a Red Sox. I'm not a White Sox. Now, th- that's the game, though. It happens. Yeah, it's a part of the sport. Um, in some ways, it was the greatest thing ever. Um, that year was just an absolute disaster. From the start of uh, spring training on, it was a disaster. You know, that experience, you know, that they just, I don't have to say any more than that. There's many a story where you can go out there. Um, it was hard. It was a hard, it was a hard send off though. Um, you know, there was, there was this, you know, this, there was a whole chicken and beer story that overtook everything. And as you know, every clubhouse has chicken and beer. Um, back then fried chicken was very common everywhere. Beer was common everywhere. They try to blame everything on the chicken and beer and all this. And for some reason I got somebody's thought I was the, I was the rat. Um, and I was laughing because the same story I told you, I was in Glen Ellen, Sonoma. I told my agent, I'm not talking to anyone. I got away from the world. Uh, so in spring training, I, I, somebody thought I was the rat that leaked something. And that story's been out there. And it's funny because that was the hardest thing for me um, in my career was teammates actually thinking that I would be the guy uh, that would rat out uh, stuff to the media. They found out a little bit later after I left and I was traded that other stories were getting put out there and I wasn't there. So I didn't know anything about those stories. So whoever that rat was, no one ever knows. Everyone, you know, talks about it to this day. Um, but that was the hardest thing for me. That year was a very tough year. Uh, and getting traded away was is somewhat sweet in that way. Cause I, I, I just, I had to get away from it. Um, it was very toxic and mentally for me after all those years of, you know, playing so hard and, and, you know, hurt my body and, and laying out for my teammates. Uh, it, it wasn't an easy, easy thing for me to be around some of those players that, you know, thought it was me. So that was the, that was the, the, the good part. The hard part for me was the fan base, um, you know, leaving in a lot of ways. That was my home for a long time. Um, I thought I was always going to retire at Red Sox. Uh, I signed a contract, you know, uh, looking back and yeah, it was a little team friendly, but you know, it all worked out in the end. Um, but it was great, you know, and, and it was hard for me. You know, the send-off was hard. Um, I, didn't ha- I, didn't have, I didn't feel like the ownership and, and people had my back anymore. Uh, but that's when you learn it's a business. It's a business and you're an entrepreneur and you got to just suck it up and you got to move on. And, and I was lucky. I got to go to Chicago, which was a great city. I grew up in Cincinnati, so a lot of friends and family I knew – in the area and the, and the White Sox treated me great, had some great teammates over there, you know, Jake Peavy, Adam Dunn, uh, you know, we, we hung out a bunch and had a good time and Alex Rios, so many good people along the way. And, uh, 
Yeah, I, I just I, I love that city. It, it was a lot. I mean, it was great. And and you know, as when you play when you play for the White Sox, you got a great hitting part too. <laughs> so yeah. you can you finally get to miss hit some balls to left and not get a base hit off the wall. Uh, you know, you you get home runs there. So uh, I enjoyed it. I really enjoy my time with the White Sox. Uh, my first child was born uh, with my wife um, in that September. So there was it, it was an emotional roller coaster that year, but. I was really happy that I got to go play for the White Sox, uh, you know, and, and I wish it would have you know, been more time there because I love that city. Uh, it's always been one of my favorite places to go in the summer. Uh, when it gets cold, you know, it's not as fun, but, uh, you know, it, it was great. And it, it was a great learning lesson, too, that, hey, you know, things move on and, and you got to move on. And, you know, I went out there and I was banged up a little bit, had a little knee issue, but just, you know, sucked it up, played through it, didn't have the results I wanted. But, you know, we had some fun. We almost made it to the playoffs that year. And, uh, you know, got to meet some cool guys along the way. 13 is your last year. And and I often wonder about this, especially about that time in Major League Baseball history, because, you know, as a player uh, during during the 2000s, you know, on different teams, it, it didn't matter what we wanted to believe, what we thought, how good we thought our team was. It was all about that Yankee Boston rivalry. And it yep. was a big deal and was by far the biggest rivalry in baseball. As much as we wanted to create our rivals uh, on different teams, that was it. And I often wonder, because there's been a lot of guys that have gone to Boston, to New York, and, and vice versa. In 13, your final season, uh, I just wanted to touch on it briefly. Being a Red Sox, winning two world championships as the Red Sox, tons of, you know, because of Boston and, and New York, especially in that time. Every Sunday night baseball was you guys every time. So you had yeah. so many of those heated putting on the Yankee uniform at the end. Was it was it surreal for you? Was it weird? I see some guys take to it and they love it. I, I Last year, I saw Ben Intendi go to the Yankees and he from the get go. I just watched him and I thought, I don't think he's really excited to be a Yankee. I don't I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. He ended up not signing back with him. Maybe that was the Yankees. Maybe it was him. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, like, it, there's still fans that, you know, hate me to this day in Boston. It's, it's hilarious. And I laugh and I go, I had, I had two offers um, for the Rays and the Indians at the time. Tito, you know, was with the Indians and he, he wanted me to come there. But they were both in, like, rebuilding years. And after you play in Boston and you win and you get a fan base, you know, Chicago was tough because we were in it, but there wasn't, like, a big fan base. You, know, you get 20,000 people at the max. And and I realized, I'm like, man, I love this game and I love winning. I don't know if I can go to a rebuild in my last few years of game. You know, I, I, I knew my career was not, it wasn't, you know, I was 34 or some years old that year. So I knew it was on the way out versus, hey, this is a you know, fresh new start and I can go five years. You know, it was going to be one of those, hey, we're going to be playing it year to year probably here from here on out. Um, so, yeah, it was not an easy decision. And there's a lot of emotions, you know, of going to the Yankees. Uh, but at the end of the day, I had to make a tough choice. And I, I talked to a lot of Boston friends. I, I mean, I remember Mark Wahlberg at a Pats game. There was like a rumor that I would, you know, the Yankees offered me a deal. I didn't sign yet. And Mark Wahlberg comes up to me. He's like, hey, he's like, you put in all. He's like, we love you regardless of what you do. He's like, go sign there. <laughs> no, thanks, <laughs> you know? Mark. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> Yeah. So he, you know, he said it like in the way he's like, listen, you know, because, and I, and I explained it and I explained it and it is just from the bottom of my heart, it wasn't an easy choice to make because I knew the emotion of the fan base, but 
the Red Sox weren't calling. They weren't calling me back. So I had to make a decision based on what was best for myself and my family. And what my family needed was Kevin in a happy place winning and not losing because losing just eats me up inside and I would have been miserable if I had to play on a losing team. So it was a tough thing. But then day one, it was the fun. The funniest thing was the press. They asked me a question. I was like, listen, you know, I'll always be a Red Sox. Like I can't take away that. Right. You know, you know, I, I just can't like, and so, you know, I, and, Literally, they blew this story up, right? Front page. <laughs> like, Euclid says he's always going to be a Red Sox. And I was like, oh, here we go. You know, it's just like, just said the wrong quote. But the funniest part was you go in the in the Yankee training room. It says, once a Yankee, always a Yankee. And so, like, it's so like, it's just so ironic, right? It's so emotional. And, you know, I almost, like, if I was on Twitter, like, I didn't have Twitter or anything like that bad. I would have taken a picture of that sign and been like, well, look. See, I said the same thing, you know, but anyways, um, but yeah, it was hard. It was a hard decision, but it was fun. You know, it was different. Uh, it was unique uh, to go see it from the other side. Uh, I think the Yankee organization, I mean, when I was there, they, they were great. You know, a lot of good people on the way. I think the media was, uh, it was, it was not as hard. The media in New York versus Boston. Um, but yeah, I, I got to meet a lot of good people on the way uh, on the Yankees and, and it was a good time. Unfortunately, my back just blew out. Um, you know, herniated disc and had a drop foot and had to have immediate uh, surgery. Uh, and that ended my, you know, major league baseball career, 17 innings in Oakland. So um, yeah, that was, uh, that was the end of my career. And, you know, it was very unfortunate and I wish I wouldn't have got injured so I could have finished out that year and, and seen how things would have gone. That is your final season, 2015. <clears throat> you get hired by Theo Epstein. There's been a lot of talk so far about, about him with his world championships with the Cubs in Boston. What, what makes Theo so special? I mean, he's, he came in and did the, the unthinkable with, with the world championships and those two organizations. Well, Theo is similar to what I just said. He hates losing. He is a fierce competitor. He, I mean, we played a pickup basketball game. I'll, I'll never forget this in a, you know, it was the front office. We were, we were in Pittsburgh for the, the one-game playoff. And uh, we went to, um, you know, Pitt. And we're playing this basketball game. And I, I go to get the ball. And he, like, jumps on my arm. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, are you, like, what? Like, this is a pickup game. Like, what are you, are you, are you really trying to wrestle me for this ball? <laughs> and so we're wrestling for this ball. And I'm laughing the whole time. And he's, like, super serious about it. And I was like, wow, there it is. That's what, that's what makes him great. Um, you know, he's just a fierce competitor. He hates losing, but, uh, you know, he's highly intelligent. You know, he's, he's very intelligent. He's not scared to take chances. You know, the one thing about, you know, to be a great GM, this is my opinion is you got to take risks. You got to sign guys for big contracts. You're not always going to hit, you're, you're going to fail at times. Um, but you know, you got to take those risks and he always does. And there's always contracts that don't add up, but he's willing to put it in and, and, and not be scared of it. Uh, but he's also very good at uh, hiring a team of people around him that are going to challenge him, um, you know, and, and he's going to, you know, challenge them too. Uh, so I, I think he, he knows how to have that, you know, the inner conflict that's a healthy conflict and does a good job of making sure that he puts the best people around him to succeed. 2007, uh, 
you get inducted in the University of Cincinnati Hall of Fame. Your number's retired. All really cool stuff. But uh, 2018, you get that phone call. That's got to kind of be the pinnacle. There's certain there's certain Hall of Fames in sports that, that are pretty special. Coming to mind, a Yankee, Boston, uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, you get that call that, that you're going into the Hall of Fame in 2018. Take me through that. And uh, how how the fans treated you coming back? It had to be it had to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, I get goosebumps just by you even saying that right now. I mean, it's uh, it was truly like I said, it, it was an emotional. It, it, it was a very hard send off. It was emotional, you know. It was it was hard, um, but that call healed some wounds. You know, uh, I, I said la- last year coming back, you know, like doing the broadcast thing, that's ca- the scars finally healed over. But the, there was some scars there that just started to heal with that call. And it, it just made me just I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I couldn't believe that I was after all the stuff that I worked so hard, never got the accolades, you know, never got the appreciation early on in my career and had to work my butt off and sacrifice. And I would say that. The greatest, the greatest athletes sacrifice more than anything. They're willing to, you know, put so much time into their craft. And for me, that's what that's what it was. It was it was putting all the time and the energy, saying no to this, can't do this, you know, can't go there, and just just thinking about all the people, you know, and, and getting that uh, you know that plaque and going down the wall of Fenway and seeing all these greats. It's and being in the same. I mean, the breath of. I mean. The Carl Yastrzemski's, the Jim Rice's, the Pedro Martinez, the, I mean, it just, it was, it was amazing. And I, I couldn't be more thankful, um, you know, to, you know, all the people, you know, cause the players around me, the coaches, the trainers, all that, it, it, it's not an individual award. And I think you know that best. I mean, individually, you got to go out there, you stand in that box alone, but there's so many people from the clubhouse guys, um, you know, to the, to the PR people that help you along the way that build, you know, and now today's game, it's the brand. We didn't really look at it as a brand back then. Um, but it was, I mean, you build your brand and you build who you are and your persona. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just such a cool thing to get, to get it, you know, to get that, that blue blazer sport coat, hall of fame, Red Sox and to be honored. And, uh, I, I'm forever grateful to Red Sox nation, um, uh, for them taking the Cincinnati kid on and, just, you know, still to this day, every time I walk down the street, you'll hear a uke like really loud. And I'm always like, I'm still, I'm still embarrassed by it <laughs> to this day. Um, but also proud, you know, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pride in Boston and I'm proud to be a part of that organization of, you know, for the rest of my life and, and, and for my, and for my kids, you know, and, and hopefully my grandkids down the, down the road that will come and visit that plaque and see it. Very cool. Kevin, the Eucalyptus, it's, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I appreciate coming on the show. It's a lot of fun going down memory lane a little bit, but talking hit, which is, which is what I love to do uh, for you out there. listening to the podcast, check out Loma brew. That's what, that's what Kevin's doing now. Best of luck going forward with your brewery. It was great catching up. And as we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast, 
as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.